Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Great to see you today. We've got a nice full house and we're happy to have you. If you are one of our visitors, thank you for being here. Make sure we get a chance to get to know you today, say hi to you, and um, we've got a gift for you that is just a few moments when we're done. If you're part of our family, it's good to have you again. Be in prayer for those of our family that are traveling right now, uh, away from us. We want to make sure that they are um, cared for and safe. There's no doubt that some of you came into our assembly this morning. You're happy and you're peaceful. Maybe life is going pretty well for you right now and you got no complaints things are good there could be some of you that have come into our assembly today and things are just sort of on autopilot you're on cruise control things are neutral you're not too high you're not too low things are just fine not good not being thankful that the week is over and you're excited about maybe what this new week has in store for you maybe this past week has been a little bit challenging but this new week might be a little bit better And there's some of you that are glad this week is over, but you're just not sure how the next week's going to go. Maybe you're under some incredible difficulties, struggling, that could possibly be you today. And if that is you, Isaiah chapter 40 is a message for the people of God who are hurting, who are struggling, a little bit unsure, for the people of God who are afraid. And in search of what he offers in the very first verse when he says, Comfort my people. Exhausted with bad news. It is good news for people who are worn out and tired and afraid and concerned and unsure. Isaiah chapter 40 is the transitional moment in Isaiah's ministry. He's got two major sections in his ministry. Chapters 1 through chapter 39 is the portion of Isaiah's ministry, the first call of judgment, to wake up the people of God to God's reality so that they could get back to the kind of people that they were always supposed to be, alive to God, energized with God, in love and in gratitude with God. But God knows, and Isaiah knows, that pending judgment is coming. No, it won't come from Assyria. We've learned about Assyria the last few weeks, and Assyria has been threatening um, Jerusalem and Judea. It won't come from Assyria. It's going to come from a nation called Babylon that is not yet a world power yet, but in just a few, about less than 100 years, they're going to become the world power. They're going to take over for Assyria, and they're going to come, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. And over about a course of 15 to 20 years, they're going to take out exiles of God's people. And God's people are going to be dispersed through all the known world, taken away from their homeland, knowing that their nation, their city has been destroyed, and they're going to be left in what the Bible calls exile and dispersion. And they're afraid. And Isaiah is speaking into that future a word for God's people who are going to be in exile, who are going to be under a punishment for what they have done and their ancestors have done. And God has a message through his prophet Isaiah, a message of comfort in the midst of turmoil and trial. 
And so as we sort of dig into this passage this morning, I ask you to be thoughtful about you in your own life. Where do you turn to and how do you react when you need comfort? Where do you turn to for comfort? When things are going bad for you, when things are difficult and you're unsure and you're afraid, what do you do to find comfort? Where do you turn? Who do you turn to? Perhaps the difficulty that you face has been collective. Maybe you've been worried about things that are going on in our nation and you've been afraid, seeking comfort. Or maybe things going on in our local state or our local cities where we live. Maybe you've experienced trauma and crisis in a local church or even in your local immediate family. Sometimes we go through crisis that is collective and it's happening to us as a group and we're afraid. Where do you turn to for comfort in those moments? Or maybe some of your crisis has been individual. Maybe you've lost a job or you can't find a job. You're wondering what to do. Maybe you experience health crisis or key relationships in your life are in rocky terms right now. Where do you turn to for comfort? Or maybe you have sin that just will not let go. Its roots are deep, its grip is tight, and it will not let go, and it's leaving you with condemnation and shame. Where do you turn for comfort? Let me start by saying this about comfort. That the only real comfort the human soul can ever experience is comfort that is born out of reality, out of truth. You see, oftentimes we try to comfort people with what really is actually just an escape. Things like distraction or denial of what's going on in our life. It is not comforting to people to distract them or deny what's going on in your life. That's not real comfort. Now that might provide some relief for a period of time, but real comfort is that which is born out of truth and out of reality. And God does not comfort us with escape like distraction and denial. He offers real, impactful comfort for your life because he is and his comfort is full of truth. Comfort that is not based upon truth is actually no comfort at all. So as you see here, as we walk through this passage together briefly, you're going to see God refer to in this passage, Isaiah refer to things that are true, that the people of God need to be reminded about. They need to be reminded of what is true to find comfort in the midst of their crisis, in the midst of their difficulty. And he starts with this, number one. He starts with reminding them what's true about themselves, what's true about you. If you look in verses 1 and 2, listen to what he says. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare, her struggle, her battle is over. That her iniquity, her sins have been pardoned. And that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. You see, first of all, God starts out by reminding us, first and foremost, of our true identity. Now, it's kind of subtle, so you've got to catch it at the very beginning in verse 1. But he says it, and he means this intentionally. God does not flip it with his words, nor does he take lightly this very phrase when he says, Comfort my people. My people. God does not use that phrase, my people, flippantly. He doesn't use the phrase, my people, haphazardly. He doesn't just say, my people, about any sort of people. When he says to the prophet Isaiah, I want you to go and comfort my people, he's drilling into their minds 
their reality of their identity, who they are. Now see, God's people in this moment are in exile. This word most likely was drawn upon some 80 to 100 years later to remind the people of God when they were in different cities and different countries ruled by different rulers. Don't forget people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't forget, although you're eating different food and in different cultures and being ruled by different kings, don't forget that you are my people. You see, this is what happens in our life. Suffering oftentimes brings us destruction of our identity. Our suffering is so intense sometimes, not just because our circumstances are difficult, but because in those difficult circumstances, our identity becomes questioned. We wonder who we are. Just imagine, remember, you probably remember, if you're old enough to remember, um, 9-11, September 11th, 2001. That was a traumatic circumstance. And what made that circumstance so difficult was not just the surrounding situation like being under attack or lives being lost, but at the core of what was causing many people crisis was a fear about who we are. Did we do something to deserve this? Have we done something wrong? Are we now weak and not able to defend ourselves? These sort of identity questions came to the surface. We'll make it a little bit more personal. Let's say that you lose a key relationship in your life. Your spouse passes away or somebody breaks up with you. You don't just go through a trial of, I've lost somebody, but you also begin to question things like, who am I without them? Or maybe you've been passed over for a promotion or you missed out on getting a job. It's not just the circumstance that oftentimes challenges us, but it's actually the identity question of, am I good enough to get this job? What's wrong with me? Or maybe you move out of your house for the first time. Maybe you go off to college or you're like the guy that was evicted from his parents' house when he was 30. Did you see that story? (laughs) You know he called the police on his parents the day he was evicted over a fight over a toy? That's a true story. Anyway, that's a different condition. But maybe you're moving out for the first time, away from people you know, to a different city, and you start to wonder, who am I? Do you remember when Jesus was baptized by John? It was a great scene. Jesus goes into the water, he comes back up, and out of the the heavens, a voice of his father says to him this phrase, You are my beloved son. He affirms his identity in that moment. And then the narrative takes us to the wilderness where Jesus has not been eating, and he's being tempted by the devil for about 40 days. And in that scenario, do you remember what Satan was tempting him with? Now you might think, bread and food, right? No, 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 that's just the peripheral. You see, he didn't come to Jesus and say, hey, you haven't eaten for 40 days. I bet you're hungry. You want to eat some bread. That's not how he tempted Jesus. Do you remember what he said? If you are God's son... Take this stone and turn it into bread. You see, what Satan was doing in the midst of that difficult circumstance was questioning Jesus' identity. And in your crisis, the thing that restores you to comfort is to remember who you are. You're God's child. Number two, in this part, he tells us not only our true identity, but our true condition. Now remember, the people of God were in exile. They were under punishment. And he tells them in verse 2, He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare has ended. It's over. 
and her iniquity is pardoned. Now, if you were a Jew in this time, hearing this message from Isaiah in the moment, or if you were in exile hearing this being read to you in the synagogue, you might be saying, wait a minute, our war is not over. I still live in Babylon, not in Jerusalem. Or you might be saying, I don't think our sin is forgiven. I'm still under curse, not a blessing. What's going on here? He's reminding them that, listen, the war, even though you're in the midst of a difficult circumstance, from God's perspective, the war is over, the sin is forgiven. In the middle of this suffering, he says the worst is over. You and I have a condition, a true condition of the soul that cannot be touched by your present circumstances. And Satan is masterful at this, that when you experience difficulty, crisis, challenges, when you need comfort, what he oftentimes tries to do is not just disrupt the physical, but the spiritual, to make you start to wonder, is God really with me? Is he against me? Am I really forgiven? He tries to bring shame and guilt and bring you under condemnation. And Jesus Christ would tell you this when he speaks about himself being the true shepherd that in my Father's hands, if you're there, no one can take you out of them. That's where you are. You see, what Isaiah is doing is trying to anchor the people of God into their identity, into their condition, that they are God's people. And if they are God's people, they will be okay. But the second thing he does in this passage is not just tell us what's true about God, us, but also what's true about the Lord. He says in verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the first thing he wants you to know that's true about God when you're in the midst of crisis, this is what brings you real comfort, is this, that God comes to you in your need. He doesn't wait for you to fix your problem and then say, okay, when you fix it, I'll begin to rain blessings upon you. But until you figure it out, until you get enough wisdom, enough power to make things right, then I'll start. That's not how God works. Over and over and over we see mankind cry out and God show up. Mankind in need and God delivering. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 5, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. In our very worst, he came for us. So imagine being a Jew, a Jew in this day, about 580 or 550 BC, and you're in exile and you hear, okay, in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Meaning the Lord's going to be the one that comes. And make straight in the desert, that means in exile, a highway for God. God's going to be the one that comes. In verse 4 he says, Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, uneven ground shall become level, and rough places will become plain or smooth. You see, this, uh, this prophecy here, this word, is that all the things that are a barrier for you returning to Jerusalem will be made right because God is coming. He comes for you over and over. When you and I face challenges, Satan oftentimes plants into our minds thoughts like, if God cared for me, he wouldn't have let this happen. Or God has abandoned me because this bad thing has taken place. He is indifferent. He's far away. He doesn't care. But over and over and over, God proves that he knows, he comes, and he promises, I will not leave you. I will never forsake you. I will deliver you. Now something else happens here in verse six, or verse 5. 
When he talks about God coming and being the deliverer for these people, he says in verse 5, there's a reason for it. And here's the second thing that's true about God, is that he makes his glory known. He says in verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, God is going to accomplish his purpose. He would declare with great might his glory and his identity to be known by all people. He would declare his will, his power, and his greatness. Now here's a question. How does God declaring to the world his glory bring you comfort? That seems to be just about God, right? Just about his business, things he's got to take care of. But when we are in trial and God is our deliverer and declares to the world his glory, his greatness, and we see it, how does that bring us comfort? Well, here's how. You see, when you see God in all of his glory, it literally is terrifying. In fact, the Bible records people seeing just glimpses of God and falling down like they're dead. In fact, Moses, when he was begging to see the glory of God, God put him into the cleft of the rock, and he covered him, and he passed by, and he let him see him from behind. He said, if you see me, you'll die. To see God in his full glory is terrifying to the human because of his might, his power, his ability, his wisdom. God is greater than anything you could ever imagine. Now, here's why this brings you comfort, to see his glory. Because when you realize that all of that power, all of that resource, all of that ability is geared towards your highest good, what you do in the midst of your difficulty, your crisis, you, is you go, nobody's bigger than him. And this difficulty, this crisis that I'm in right now that's taking all of my comfort away, when I remember that nothing is greater than him, nothing is more powerful than him, when I see his glory and I remember that his glory and my good is what he's driving all of that towards, I take a deep breath and I'm comforted by remembering how powerful he is. The song we sang just before I got up tells you of that narrative. I don't know what tomorrow holds, right? But I know whose hand I'm in. That's what he's trying to tell us, is that his glory brings us comfort. But the last thing you need to know is this. You can trust what God says. I'm only 35 years old, so I can only speak about my timeline in life, but there's never been a time in the history in which I've lived that we have needed a resurgence of a trust in God's word. We live in a culture that is so subjective with truth. In fact, what we are obsessed with now is everyone's personal interpretation. There's a whole new study in the humanities in higher education right now that is obsessed with not reading a, um, a classic literary piece and figuring out what the author meant by it. But now in the humanities and the higher ed, what they want you to do is read classics and know, hey, what do you think about it? Gone is the idea of what was the author trying to say? What was going on in the author's context in history? And let's figure out what the author is trying to communicate. Rarely do people even think about that anymore. What they ask is, well, how does this great piece of literature make you feel? And what do you think about it? We're obsessed with not God's word or an objective word, but a subjective word. And our culture is crumbling under this. Because listen to what he says about this. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely, here's what's grass. The people are grass. So if you build right now your life 
upon my words, my wisdom, my insight. Guess what's going to happen? Eventually, God's mouth is going to blow upon me, and I'm going to wither and fade away, and your life will crumble. If you build your life upon the word of another human in your life, what your spouse says about you, what your boss says about you, what your teacher says about you, what your parents say about you, what your children say about you, if you build your life upon the word of somebody other than God, it will eventually crumble. Because all flesh is like grass. And when the mouth of the Lord breathes upon it, it fades away. But look what he says in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You need, yes you, I'm not talking generically, you and I need a resurgence. I'm not talking outside of these walls, I'm saying inside these walls. A resurgence in the trust of God's word. A resurgence in building your life on nothing other than what God has said about who you are, about why you're here, about where we're going, and about how to get there. We're building our lives constantly on words other than God's word. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised if you get your nose into God's word and realize what he's actually said about you. There's not a place in this world that tells you human dignity is greater than God. There's not a place in the world that's going to give you more value and more worth. There's not a place in the world that's going to tell you more truth about how to get your life right in a way that's sustaining than God and His Word. You've got to get back into it. We are desperate for a word to be relied upon, and God reminds us that things come and go, philosophies come and go, ideas come and go, but His Word remains, and you and I need to trust it. Let me finish with this. So you need to know, for your real comfort, what's true about you your identity, and your circumstance. You need to know what's true about God, that he comes for you in your need, that he makes his glory known, and that you can trust him. But you need to know what's true also about comfort in general, comfort. Look at the end in verses 9 through 11. Here's what he tells you about comfort. Just the idea of real comfort. First of all, comfort is best when it is shared. Comfort is like a circuit that has to be completed. If you are a person that is constantly receiving comfort and not yet a person that is giving any kind of comfort, you haven't completed the circuit and really experienced the fullness of what comfort has to offer you. You notice he says in verse 9, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not, say to the cities, behold your God. Here's what he's telling them. People need to go up and tell other people where comfort is found. You need to share comfort. Comfort, as I've said, is a circuit that needs to be completed, both received but then given. And when you have to give comfort, here's what it does. Here's why it's so important. When you become a person that moves out into the world and gives comfort to other people, it forces you to reckon with what you believe. Do you believe that God is all good and all powerful? Do you believe that God, in his timing, does things the right way? These are things you say to people when they need comforted. Do you believe it? And comfort, when you make it, when you have to share it, drives the truth inward in a deeper way. You walk away oftentimes when you become a person ministering to others, strengthen yourself. That's why he says, go up on the mountain and scream about this. Because you need to complete the circuit of comfort. Number two, comfort is best when it is complete. Look how he describes Jesus, our Savior, in verse 10. 
Remember he said in verse 3, make a way for the Lord to come and be a Savior. Verse 10 says, behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So he's showing the Lord here, God on one side, mighty, powerful, reward giver, recompense. He has it with him. But verse 11 says this, he will tend his flock like a shepherd, gathering the lambs in his arms, carrying them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Do you see that? Both sides of who he is. You see, we have a temptation as humans to lean one way or the other when we need comfort. We either go to the side of power and dominance to make ourselves feel better, or we go to the side of empathy and sympathy. So just imagine for a moment you lose, somebody loses a job in your life. You either go to that person, this is where we get tempted, and say, you didn't need that job anyway. You're going to get a better job. You're too smart for those people. Do you see, we, we go to the power side to try to comfort them. Or we go to the side that says, oh, I'm so sorry. This is so tragic. This is awful. And we go to the soft side. And when we go one side or the other side, we miss what real comfort is. Comfort is both of those things coming together. He says in verse 10 that there's a, Jesus Christ has might and power and reward. Yes, there are good things coming, and you will have good things coming to you. There's power there, but also there's sympathy. I know this was important to you. I know this mattered, and you'll be okay. For real comfort to come into your life, you've got to have both. But ultimately, comfort is best when it's personal. Listen to how he describes Jesus as this shepherd who tends to his flock. He gathers his lambs. He carries them in his bosom. He gently leads them. And he tells us in verse 9 to go up on a high mountain and lift up your voice. He wants you to tell others from your voice how God, the great God, comforts you. He wants us, as the phrase goes, to become what are called wounded healers. Meaning out of your own pain, out of your own struggle, out of your own suffering, as God has been careful and comforted you, you learn how to then comfort other people. Comfort is best when it is shared, when it is complete, and when it's personal. Listen how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and God of all comfort, who comforts us, Paul says, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. He said comforted six times there. Did you hear it? He says, blessed be God who has comforted us in our affliction so that we can comfort others in their affliction. Now listen how he describes what the comfort really is. He says, for we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. It, 
uh, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Here's what Paul's saying. I was under such turmoil, such circumstance, that it made me feel like I was on the brink of death. And here's what the point of that was. The end of verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So you may have come into here struggling, suffering, in need of comfort. Listen to me. It's not wasted. It's not useless. God actually, in his brilliant, good, sovereign wisdom, allows us to go into trial, difficulty, circumstances, where we suffer. To learn to trust him for comfort, not to rely upon ourselves, but to rely upon him. Do you notice the tense in which this is written back in Isaiah? There's some bold promises that are made. And he says this in verse 2, that the war is over, iniquity is forgiven. Those are bold statements. And how? Verse 3 says, cry out in the wilderness. The Lord is coming. Make his path straight. And in about 500 years from now, when most of the people were reading this, there would be a guy who would be in the wilderness. And he would be crying out loud, making straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was his name. You see... They turn to this pass and they realize John is crying out in the wilderness. He's making the pass straight. They come to get John and they say, John, are you the Messiah? And he says, I'm not the Messiah. And he points to Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He made his path straight. And Jesus lowered the mountains, raised the valleys, made smooth the way. He walked that walk. But how did he make that mountain lower and that valley higher? By walking the mountain himself all alone. He made that path straight for you and I to walk by walking the crooked point to his very death. You see, our Savior came. He walked this path. He led the way so that you and I could then become the very people that turned to him for comfort. His way that brought us comfort took away his comfort. His way that brought you peace took away his peace. And in just a few weeks, Isaiah is going to tell us all about him in chapter 53. But you got to know this. The Lord has come. He's made a way for you to return to him so that you can have comfort and realize trusting in him was way better than anything else I've ever trusted in. If you need comfort, he's available for you now. We'll help you. Come as we stand and sing.